Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Well, good morning. Thanks again for joining us by uh, video there in your homes as we do our best to worship together during these days. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word, which I'm confident you have there in front of you, and be finding 1 John chapter 3, and we will be looking at verses 19 through 24. It is uh, seemingly required now that every sermon mention something about COVID-19 or the coronavirus, or at least we have to use popular phrases like we live in uncertain times, or we have to reference the numerous stay-at-home orders that are in effect throughout our nation. I mean, if we want to assure people that we are current and up-to-date in our sermon preparation, that we are contemporary in our preaching, then these things must be included. Otherwise, we run the risk of appearing to be out of touch with the current situation and therefore not worthy of being heard. So I'll do my part while also running the risk that with some of you, you're tired of hearing these things, or at least you hear them enough on the news that you don't need to hear them from me. One of the elements of this drama that has people so frustrated and perhaps even angry revolves around the testing for the virus. There are many people that are sick and are frustrated because they are unable to get tested, and so they don't really even know whether they have this virus or they have something else because the tests are not readily available, leading to frustration for them and perhaps even anxiety for the rest of us. After all, we begin to wonder if there are all these people out here that are unable to get tested. Maybe the numbers of people who really have this are far greater than we are being told. And why is there such a shortage of tests? Well, that's another question we have, though we don't have clear answers other than the fact that more tests are promised. Actually, we normally don't even like tests. I mean, we think we put those behind us when we got out of school. But these tests are a good thing, at least for those who need it. Those who do get tested have to wait, usually three or four days, to get the results of the test, even though, once again, quicker tests are being promised, and most of us find it very difficult to wait, especially when that waiting is for results that, in these cases, have life and death consequences. But for those who are sick, there is really no other option. Well, after breaking for Easter last week to, of course, think about and reflect upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we return this morning to our study of John's first epistle. And if you've been with us throughout this study, you know that John is offering us a series of tests. These tests are not in short supply. Instead, they are readily available to anyone who is willing to be honest enough with themselves to take these tests seriously. And the results of these tests don't come just with life and death consequences. In fact, it is actually much more significant and serious than that. We're talking about eternal consequences 
when it comes to these tests that John is giving us. Your first reaction might be that all of that may be true, but such tests are only for those who are sick, and I'm not sick. Well, here again, there is a helpful comparison with our coronavirus situation. Because we know by now that it is possible, in fact, it is the regular course, for someone to actually have the virus for a number of days, even up to a couple of weeks, without exhibiting any symptoms, that is, without even feeling sick. They don't know they have the virus, and that's why it is among other reasons, necessary for us to social distance, because nobody knows who has it. Likewise, you might think that you are perfectly fine spiritually, only to discover by taking John's test seriously that you might fail. Now, wouldn't you rather know that now and be able to seek and find the remedy rather than to ignore the issue? So this morning we are actually still dealing with the test that we examined a couple of weeks ago. In fact, before we get to our main text, look back at chapter 3 and verse 14, where John says, we know that we have passed out of death into life, which is just another way of talking about salvation. Here is how we know that we are genuinely saved, at least one way. And what's the answer? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. That is, they are not genuinely saved. And then from that section, we move to the passage that we are dealing with this morning. Two weeks ago, we talked about a message of love. That is, it is your responsibility and mine as believers to be that message and love one another. And again, the theme is still the same. Loving one another within the body of Christ. And those who are alive in Christ do that. And those who do not, evidence that they are still dead in sin. So look with me at chapter 3, verses 19 through 24, as we think about a lifestyle of love. Verse 19, By this we shall know that we are of the truth, and reassure our hearts before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God, and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Now you notice there in verse 19 that our text begins with these two words, by this, which is the key to understanding that there is and remains a connection between what we looked at two weeks ago that ended in verse 18 and what we are looking at this morning. So the subject remains loving one another within the body of Christ. Now we know that we are followers of Christ and have the truth in part because we show this love to one another. And we said two weeks ago that that is not always easy to do. Partly because others are sometimes hard to love, 
and partly because they will not love us in return. So while we might be quick to conclude that John is writing from what we might perceive to be an idealistic perspective, this is not the case because the first thing you see here is this. As we live this lifestyle of love, there is conflict to expect. That's point number one. There is conflict to expect. Now, in this case, I am not referring to conflict between you and me or between us and someone else. I'm not talking about relationships where by nature there is always conflict because we are all sinners. Instead, what I'm talking about this morning is an internal conflict, meaning that sometimes we want to love others, and frankly, sometimes we just don't care. There are days when we want to exhibit the love of Christ, and there are days when that is the furthest thing from our minds. We are certainly seeing this roller coaster of inward feelings and thoughts throughout our entire current situation. One day we are content. And dare I say, we might even enjoy the slowness of the pace of life and the stay-at-home orders. Only the next day to be bored out of our minds and feeling cooped up and ready to get out. One day we are at peace with God, knowing that He is in control of everything, and yes, is even working in the midst of this situation. And then a day or two later, we are filled with worry and anxiety, wondering, where God is. One day we are confident that God will keep His promise to care for His children. And the next day we look at the stock market and it goes down significantly yet again. And we wonder if we're going to have enough money to retire someday. Likewise, sometimes the love of Christ towards others flows freely. And other days, it is nowhere near on the top of our priority list. And that's what I mean by saying that there is a, a conflict to expect, a conflict within our own hearts. Now, there are some difficulties in this particular section of Scripture with some of the wording in order to come to the proper interpretation. One of those is found right there in verse 19, in the first verse. The ESV, from which I read, uses the word reassure. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. That word reassure, every other time the word is used in the New Testament, it means something like convince or persuade. It's actually the word Paul uses in Romans chapter 8 when he says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, and then he goes on from there. That word persuaded, the same word that we find here. Again, Paul uses it in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 where he says, For I am confident of this very thing, or I am convinced of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So many believe that in this particular text, the only time John uses this word, that it's used in a slightly different way than the way it's used everywhere else. And therefore here it means assurance as in the assurance of salvation. A few others, on the other hand, say that based on the context and the normal translation of the word, that what we have here is actually a heart that is trying to rationalize and justify not needing to love others. 
In other words, do we really have to love sacrificially, as John has been saying? Is this necessary that we bear the fruit of loving others in order to give evidence of our salvation? I mean, maybe it's not all that necessary, and therefore we can avoid it. Well, we'll come back to that in just a few moments, but clearly the word heart is an important word in this section. It occurs four times in the first three verses, verses 19 through 21. Now, when we see the word heart, we would most naturally think of the physical organ within our body that pumps the blood, and by its nature, it is essential. If the heart is not pumping the blood, then we are not alive. But more often than not, when the Bible uses the word heart, it is referring to the source of spiritual life. Not the physical organ, but the the inner life, the center and innermost part of mankind. It's actually a word that is occasionally used as a synonym with the word mind. Again, I appeal to the Apostle Paul, and again in Philippians, he said, the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds. He's using those two words synonymously there. Or in 2 Corinthians, he speaks of the Israelites' minds being dull. And then in the very next verse, he says, a veil covered their hearts. So again, he's using the, the two words, mind and heart, synonymously. And so in short, the heart here speaks of the essence of all that we are. The thoughts, the emotions, the will, everything within us is encapsulated by this word heart. And therefore, at times, this conflict that we are to expect tells us that our heart condemns us, meaning that it tells us we are not right and in fact have done something wrong. We might even equate this with the word conscience, though strictly speaking, the Bible does not use those two words synonymously. Sometimes our heart condemns us rightly, meaning that we are wrong. And specifically in this particular context, it would mean that our heart condemns us, that we are not loving one another within the body of Christ like we ought to, And again, if we go back to the previous section of Scripture, that means not just in word, but in deed and in truth. At other times, the accusation is false. That is, our heart can falsely condemn us. Our hearts can actually be too harsh at times and too lenient at others. Which, by the way, is one reason why the popular advice on this subject is not accurate nor biblical. Follow your heart. Let your conscience be your guide, is the way it is normally heard. The implied conclusion is that our heart is accurate, and therefore it can be followed, that it is not going to give us wrong directions. And yet the Bible itself says the heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Indeed, when our heart condemns us, rightly or wrongly, we are to turn to God. For John says that God is greater than our hearts and is all-knowing. We studied that in life group recently. So God is not deceived by our hearts, though we can be. He never is. And therefore, it is to Him that we must turn when our heart condemns us. So as believers... We trust in the Word of God. Romans, again, 
For there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Or when our heart condemns us, we can stay right here in 1 John and go all the way back to the first chapter and that, that famous verse there, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But remember, I said there is a conflict to expect. So yes, sometimes our heart does condemn us. On the other hand, sometimes our heart convinces us. And the rest of this section of Scripture deals with that side of the conflict. So when we are convinced that loving others is essential, and we follow through with that, not just in word, but also in deed, it is then that our heart convinces us. And when this is the case, everything else I say from here on out will also likely be true of you. But all of us are going to have this inner conflict. We are all going to experience ups and downs in our faith and in our trusting of God. The Christian life is not a continual mountaintop experience. We all face hills and valleys. So the second thing we need to see in our text is when our hearts do convince us, then we have confidence to ask. We find this in verse 22. Now this is one of those statements on prayer that we find hard to fathom. Can this possibly be true? And if it is true, why am I not experiencing this in my own prayer life? Why does my prayer life seem to fall so far short of what John says in verse 22? On the other hand, there are some who take such statements at face value without reading the context, and perhaps without applying common sense, and fanatically conclude that with enough faith in God, we can get anything that we want and more. So is John saying you can ask anything? Well, yes, in some sense, he certainly is. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that we are to come boldly and with confidence to the throne of grace. And the fact is, without confidence, our prayer life is going to suffer or really be non-existent. I mean, if we don't believe in God or believe that God cares enough to listen or somehow convince ourselves that God does not have the power to do what we want Him to do, then there is no drive nor desire to pray. But if we have all of that, is it true that we can ask anything and then expect everything? Because that is what seems to be said here. Ask anything and expect everything. Well, I'm not trying to diminish what the Bible says here. I'm simply trying to properly interpret what John means in light of not only this context, but the broader context of the rest of Scripture. So I remind you again that this is only true for those whose hearts has convinced them. In other words, if we are in the first category of that conflict where our hearts are condemning us, then verse 22 is not a promise for us. Which means, once again, that we must be in a position in life where we are loving one another within the body of Christ, and doing so not just in word, but also in deed. And if we're not doing that, then if I can be really honest, it doesn't really matter what verse 22 means, because it doesn't apply to you anyway. So you have to be in a position where your heart has convinced you 
that you are indeed right with God because of what we've already talked about. Now, we must always be careful when it comes to biblical interpretation that we take a promise and make sure that it applies to us rather than just lifting a promise out of Scripture and assuming it applies to us. Because if we do that and expect God to answer a promise that frankly has never applied to us, or at least doesn't in that context, and when God doesn't answer, we blame God. And our confidence and trust in Him diminishes when in fact He has done nothing wrong. I will also remind you that in any request, it must be in accordance with God's will for us to expect and receive a positive answer. So even as we say, ask anything and expect everything, we have to understand that all of this must be in the will of God. And that is not just a disclaimer to get God off the hook like we often use it. And what I mean by that is this, we sometimes end our prayers with that catchphrase, if it be your will. And without thinking about it, I I think what we really mean is we're we're trying to, to get ourselves off the hook and God at the same time. In other words, if God doesn't answer positively, well, then it wasn't God's will. It wasn't that my request request was necessarily wrong or that I did not have enough faith. It just wasn't God's will. So I'm not just throwing this out there as a way to excuse the, the lack of answers that we might be seeing in our own lives. I'm saying this because it's a biblical requirement. We can't just carte blanche ask for anything It must be in accordance with God's will. And while that sounds like a contradiction to verse 22, it is not. And I know it's not because of what John says later. Look at chapter 5 and verse 14. Obviously, we'll come to this in the weeks ahead, but chapter 5 and verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything, and what's the next phrase? According to His will. He hears us. So right here in the same letter, just two chapters later, John includes that clause that I'm emphasizing here. So while convinced hearts leads to confidence to ask, the asking must be done in accordance with God's will. Well, the third thing we need to notice is that for all of this to be true, there are commands to keep. You know the old saying, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Or the admonition that it is important to read the fine print because it is here in the fine print that you will find the exclusions or the waivers to what is promised in the main document. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to accuse God of deception or hiding the exclusions in the fine print. There is no fine print here. It is all the same font. God is very clear not only about the promises, but also about the commands to keep. The problem is not with God. The problem is sometimes with us, that we latch on to the promise. Ask whatever you want and expect to receive everything. And we fail to see the conditions that go along with it. And in this case, the conditions are these commands. The first statement is general in nature. He simply says we must obey His commands. I mean, we certainly can't expect God to pour out answers to our prayers while we are living in disobedience and rebellion before Him. 
When our children rebel against us, we still love them. Our relationship with our children doesn't change when they are going through periods of disobedience, but our desire and drive to give them what they want begins to dry up. After all, we reason, and rightly so, that if while they are in rebellion, we give them what they want, doesn't that in one sense endorse and even encourage their disobedience? Now, as I've said often, this does not mean perfect obedience. Otherwise, this promise is not applicable to anyone. It speaks again of a lifestyle, a pattern of our life. So is obedience to the commands of God the general bent of your life? Do you walk, normally speaking, in obedience to the Word of God? And when we live in this manner, John says it is pleasing to God. And by the way, that's our motive, isn't it? As children of God, we want to do what is pleasing to the Father. Not in order to earn His love, nor to earn our salvation. We desire to please the Father out of gratitude for the love He has already bestowed and showered upon us. Now, any parent knows that you can definitely tell the difference between a child who is being obedient because they want to please their parents and a child who is being obedient because they fear the consequences. And oftentimes this is readily noticeable. Sometimes it is in the way they stomp off in defiance, willing to do what you've commanded them to do, but not in the least bit happy about it. Or it might be in the tone of their answer or in the answer itself. Again, outwardly they intend to comply, but they want to make sure that you know they have no desire to do what you're telling them to do. So they're going to do the action, but they're not happy about it. God, of course, is not merely interested in external obedience. If God were merely concerned with external obedience, then the Pharisees would have been His best friends. I mean, they were the men in that time who followed the law in a more strict manner than anybody else. And yet, if you read your Gospels, you know that Jesus had quite a lot of critical comments to make concerning the Pharisees. God desires outward obedience, that's for sure, but He desires that that outward obedience flow from a heart of love and devotion. The external act and the internal desire being in unison with one another so that obedience and pleasing God go together. But that's the general statement, obey the commands. Then to this general statement, John gets a little more specific. And he says, first of all, this first command is to believe in Jesus. That's singular. The many commands all fall under the one command, and that one command is to believe in the name of Jesus. Now, John is clearly not talking about a mere profession of faith. That would nullify the entire purpose of this letter. Again, we've said it regularly. The reason he's writing is to distinguish between those who are making a profession of faith. That is, they say they believe in God, but their life does not back it up. Versus those who genuinely do know God because they are giving evidence of salvation. So when he says, believe in the name of Jesus, he is not talking about saying that phrase. 
And so many in our day simply think that I believe in Jesus is enough to bring salvation. Well, I remind you that James tells us that even the demons believe and they tremble, which of course is a way of saying they're certainly not saved. So it's got to go beyond merely stating the terms. So believing in the name of Jesus means embracing all that comes with that name and the person behind that name. Everything that Jesus entails is all brought together in that statement, believe in the name of Jesus. Which means when we embrace the name, we take it all. There are so many people in our day who want to pick and choose which parts of Jesus to accept and which to reject. The positive and uplifting aspects of Jesus, primarily His love for us, well, that we will embrace because we want that and need that. But the commands or the requirements, the sacrifice or the service, I mean, who needs all of that? And so there is a, a common belief that we can simply pick and choose whatever we want, taking those options that appeal to us while leaving the others behind. And yet, as genuine believers, we do not have this option. So the command to believe implies our desire to obey all the other commands, all in an effort to please God, whom we love. So the first specific command is to believe. Believe in the name of Jesus. And that does not negate all the other commands. All the other commands flow from that. That is, when I believe in Jesus, then when He tells me something to do, I'm going to want to do it because I'm taking all of Jesus. But then John gives us a second command to keep. And that second command to keep is to love one another. Now, this one is familiar to us by now. It's also another way that we know we're still on the same theme. That is because he reiterates this statement that we are to love one another. We know that he's still talking about the same thing he's been talking about through the first half and down through the end of this particular chapter. Since we've talked about this before, I won't belabor the point. But I do want to highlight that of all the things that John could have mentioned, he mentions only those two telling us how significant and important they are. There are some commands to keep. If we want confidence to ask, then there are some commands to keep. And those commands are, believe in Jesus and love one another. And from that, all other commands flow. Didn't Jesus say something similar? On one occasion, He was asked by the Pharisees, which is the greatest commandment in all the law? And Jesus' answer was a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6, a, a very important passage of Scripture for an Israelite. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, He said, You are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. And then in answer to the Pharisees' questions, He added, And love your neighbor as yourself. And John is basically saying the same thing. Those whom, whose hearts convince them before God can have confidence in prayer. There is a logical progression in this passage of Scripture. If your heart convinces you, then you can have confidence in prayer. But this confidence in prayer is contingent upon living out these commands to believe in Jesus and to love one another. Now, if you're still with me, and by that I, I do not mean that you have not fallen asleep or turned this off or 
you're playing with your phone. And yes, if you're playing with your phone, stop. Pay attention. I mean when I say communion to enjoy is our last point, that when our heart convinces us that we can have confidence to ask God, and therefore we are expecting answers because we are keeping His commands, all of which is part of this lifestyle of love, then this last thing is true of us as well. And that is we can have communion to enjoy. Now, I am not talking and using that word communion in the way that we normally use it in church. That is, when we normally think of the word communion, we are talking about the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. I do realize that there are some who want to do communion virtually during this time of separation, and I realize that there are churches who are indeed doing that. And I am not trying to say that they are wrong in what they're doing. I'm simply saying that I'm not convinced from Scripture that it is right to do communion uh, when we're apart, because communion is a gathering ordinance. That is, we are commanded when you come together that we are to do this, which is why as a church we do not practice family communion. We do not have Sunday school class communion. We do not have life group communion. And I have stated before that I'm not a fan of a bride and groom doing communion at their wedding. Because all of these things are smaller groups and not the gathering of the body. So when we do come back together, communion or the Lord's Supper will certainly be on the calendar. But that doesn't mean that we can't have communion in the sense that I'm talking about this morning, in the way I'm using this word. Communion in a personal rather than a corporate manner. So what exactly do I mean? Well, I mean what John says there in the last verse. And that is mutual abiding. Christ in you and you in Christ. Again, the word abide has been a favorite of John's. We've seen it often. It's not only found throughout this letter, it is found in the Gospel of John as well. But here perhaps it's a little clearer as to what exactly it means. And by that I mean elsewhere, sometimes we're just told, abide in Christ. And our natural response to that is, okay, but what does that mean? How do I abide in Christ? Well, John answers that question for us. How do I abide in Christ, he says? Well, by keeping His commands. And specifically, the two commands that we've just talked about. Believing in Jesus and loving one another. Now again, I know we normally think of commands as a kind of negative thing. Something we must do whether we like it or not. Something someone else is telling us that we must do. But that's the wrong way to look at it. Keeping the commands of God allows us to have communion with God. And enjoying God is the whole point and purpose of our lives. I know we Baptists are not by nature a people of catechisms, perhaps to our own detriment. But maybe you are familiar with the first question of the Westminster Confession. The first question asks, or the Westminster Catechism, I should say, the first question asks, what is the chief end of man? Which means it's asking the question, what is our purpose? What are we here for? The very question that many of you are asking. And it answers that by saying, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now, we seem to be more familiar with words like serve and worship 
And those are certainly important parts of our faith. But let us not forget the word enjoy either. A relationship with someone, and especially a relationship with God, is meant to be enjoyed. Most of us would agree that so much of what we enjoy in life has been temporarily taken away, including relationships. We're not able to have face-to-face relationships. Perhaps you are experiencing withdrawal symptoms because sports, something you enjoy very much, has been taken away. Or maybe it is the enjoyment of a meal shared with family or friends at your favorite local restaurant, something that we cannot do anymore. Or the enjoyment of enjoying the beauty of the Smoky Mountains. Maybe it's a trip you had planned. Or any number of fun or recreational opportunities that you were expecting to enjoy this spring. They were on your calendar and now they are all gone. Taken away by a virus. But there is one enjoyment that cannot be taken away. Now we can forfeit it. That is, we can give it away ourselves. But nothing else can take away this one enjoyment. And it is the one enjoyment we were created to enjoy. And that is communion with God. In fact, don't we have now more time for this very thing? Something through the years we've been quick to say that we don't have time for? Now suddenly we have more time for it? Now I don't like to speculate, but is it possible that one reason for all of this is that God is forcing us to slow down? And therefore turn to Him? Whether that's a reason for this or not, it certainly should be a desired outcome. That we would use our time wisely in what I'm calling here mutual abiding. Abide in Christ and He in you. And along with this mutual abiding, the chapter ends with spirit indwelling. Another way for us to know that all of this is true of us. That we've passed the test, as it were is that God's Spirit is within us. Look at the last phrase of the chapter. By this we know the Spirit... I'm sorry, that's the wrong verse. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Now this is actually the first time in John's letter that the Holy Spirit is mentioned, but it won't be the last. In fact, this statement that has concluded chapter 3 simply paves the way for the opening of chapter 4. How can I know that it is the Spirit of God in me that is leading me versus some other spirit? Well, that's a good question. And I want you to save that question because it's our topic for next week. Until then, while your normal lifestyle continues to remain on hold, a lifestyle of love doesn't have to, nor should it. Now, the way we express that love has certainly drastically changed. But our desire to demonstrate our faith in Christ by the way we love one another should not. So would you pray that God would open up for you unique opportunities during this time of social distancing for you to demonstrate your love for the brothers and sisters of Christ. And in so doing, that He would confirm your heart before Him, giving you then confidence in prayer 
and communion with Him to enjoy. Now friends, those are two things. Confidence in prayer and communion to enjoy. Those are two things that no pandemic can ever take away. Let me pray. Father, we thank You again for the time we've had to gather this morning to worship in this manner, but to worship nevertheless, and to hear from Your Word. And I pray that we would be, more often than not, in a, in a place in our lives where our hearts are confirming us, convincing us, rather than condemning us. That our hearts are right before You, because our spiritual lives are our priority. And therefore, we have confidence to come before You in prayer and to ask for those things that are in accordance with Your will. And that having that confidence then, we can enjoy the answers to our prayers. And we can see You working in our lives. And ultimately, we can enjoy communion with You. Father, would You help us to enjoy You? Yes, even as we serve, even as we worship, may we not forget that we were created to glorify God and enjoy You forever. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you again for joining us this morning. As Aaron has already said, we look forward with great anticipation to the time when you will be in these pews again. But until then, we are grateful for the technology we have to come into your homes and worship in this way.